Let's turn to Luke chapter 23. What I said earlier is the second Sunday of Lent. Um, those are great Lent songs, right? Um, the With us bringing ourselves underneath this whole idea of what God has done, Jesus tells us, if anybody wants to come after him, all you have to do is deny yourself, take up your cross daily, follow me. It is a life of learning to say no to our desires and yes to what he desires and shedding anything that is keeping us from that. And through us imitating him and following him and becoming like him, the kingdom of God comes near to the world around us. And so one of the ways that we're doing that together during Lent is by looking at the crucifixion over and over and over and over again. And the way that that's being structured this year is through the the last seven things that Jesus said on the cross. And so we're going to put a picture up and we're going to just leave it up as I as I read the text today to kind of give you an image and like to focus on um, so that we can really like get into the scene a little bit more. And I was looking for a picture. Let's go ahead and put that picture up. I was trying to find one of the three crosses where Jesus' cross wasn't like significantly taller than everyone else's or like out front more or something like that. And um, I was like trying to find just the right one. This is the best I could do. Uh, technically, the two outside guys are not nailed to the cross. I don't know how they got around that. But um, I thought I found a great picture of just three very evenly done crosses, but it turns out they're all telephone poles. So um, I didn't put that up there. But um, if we were to be there that day, there probably would not have been a situation where Jesus' cross was taller or bigger or out front and the other guys are in the background. They probably would have just been lined up kind of like this. Um, so let me just read, read the passage, and uh, you can read along or you can just look at the picture or visualize it yourself. Starting in verse 32. Those two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that's called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals. One on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, Watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, then save yourself. There's also an inscription over him, said, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Now, when we look at this picture, um, 
it's common to see three crosses together. We have some on our interstate, right? And uh, there are some things that should come to mind for us when we when we see this. You know, and part of it is that it's a picture of the incarnation, that the Word has become flesh and dwelt among us. Now, typically, that's a Advent Christmas scene, and it's a baby in a manger. This also is the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, this also is is a scene, is a is a picture. It's supposed to remind us of some things, and that's one of them. Is that here is God come to like Jesus came to save sinners, and this is Him hanging between two sinners. Um, it's also the fulfillment of prophecy that when we see those three crosses, um, that's like one of the boxes that got checked. And let me read to you in Isaiah 53, verse 12 says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured his soul out to death and was numbered with the transgressors. That's, that's the picture. He was numbered with the transgressors. He was uh, hanging there with the sinners. And then it says, Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What did he just do? Numbered with the transgressors, hanging there with him, what did he just do? He made intercession for them, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's These things are happening. And so we're not only seeing the word became flesh and dwelt among us, we're also seeing prophecy and promises, uh, promises made being kept through the prophetic word. We also see... Uh, if you want to think of this as like a timeline, let's just go ahead and assign the, that thief as the unrepentant thief and this thief as the one who had the amazing conversation with Jesus. If you think of that as a timeline, you're crossing from death into life going through Jesus to get there. Like we're seeing a progression so there's a lot happening visually for us if we will if we will like embrace it and soak it up, you know. I know that for me, the older I've gotten, and especially the practice of Advent, has changed how I look at a at a nativity scene, you know. And I think that Lent can change how we look at not only like the cro- a cross, but even seeing all three of them. That these guys are not there as just like uh, random details of the story. That there's really a lot of significance here. Let's let's walk through these verses more slowly. Look at verse 39. It says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, said, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, this guy, is good, the criminal on the right. And Chris, you can put the verses up at this point. We're all good with the image. Okay, uh, The guy on the right... Uh, railing at Jesus, uh, he just wants what Jesus can get for him, right? Like he doesn't really love Jesus or believe in Jesus, or he's like, "Dude, save us! What are you doing? What are you waiting on? Like, if you're so powerful, how about you like hook us all up?" You know, he doesn't really want Jesus for himself. He like. Dallas Willard calls that being a vampire Christian, where you, you, you just want a little of Jesus' blood, right? 
Just a little blood. You don't, you don't want all of that. You don't want the whole, like, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, follow me. You don't want the, the kingdom of God. You don't want to, like, become like the rabbi. Like, you don't, you don't want all that stuff. You just want to be saved. That's it. Vampire Christians. Maybe this is the first one. I don't know. But Jesus is not meeting this guy's expectations, is he, in that moment? And it's so easy for me to be critical of this guy. Like, how dare he? The thing is, I've been in situations where God was not meeting my expectations. He was not showing up the way that I thought he needed to show up. Or he was late. Or when he did show up, you're like, that's not what I asked for right there. Plenty of times when I have thought that I would do a better job at ruling my little kingdom than God does. Or big kingdoms, right? So this guy on the right, it's, it's, he's not a rarity, is he? I feel like we can all find ourselves in him a little bit. Frustrated. What's happening in this moment? He's, he's nailed to a cross. He's suffocating for, like suffocating to death for his own sins. He is suffering in this moment. He is in agony. And he's got to blame somebody. So let's blame the Lord. And I don't want to harp on that too much, but I, I feel like there is a relatability there for us. And we've all probably been there at different times and to different degrees. But when we see the three crosses, we need to remember that, that person. Maybe that's who you were. Maybe that's who you are right now in terms of just like you're struggling and God's letting you down, you know. Let's move to the other guy, though. Verse 40. The other rebuked him. Said, do you not fear God? Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man's done nothing wrong. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, something has happened to this guy. Okay. If you were to read this account in Matthew's gospel, uh, prior to this moment, there's this, this is what Matthew 27, 44 says. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So at one point, both of these guys were joining in with the crowds and mocking Jesus. But now here they are hanging on their crosses and this guy on Jesus' left is saying some completely different things. And if you if you examine what he's saying, like I want you to I want to go through it slowly for a second and look at the significance, like the the like only the Holy Spirit can do this in you kind of stuff that he is saying. So he starts off, do you not fear God? In verse 40. Now, now fear fear to us is associated with like horror movies and those kinds of things, but fear fear biblically is more about respect and reverence and being in awe of God. And so you tremble in fear, but not because you're afraid of God, but it's because you see him for who he is and you you're just stunned, that kind of thing. And so he starts off with this like don't don't you have any reverence for who God is? 
Then he says, then he says, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we're receiving due reward for our deeds. He owns his contribution to the sin and death that's happening in this moment. He's basically saying, we're sinners, dude. Like, we have done this. We have brought pain into our community. And this is the consequences of it. He's owning his own sin, but then he acknowledges the innocence of Jesus. He says, this man's done nothing wrong. Somehow he's come to a point out of reverence for God, recognizing his own brokenness, but also seeing like this man is different. This guy has done nothing wrong. Then he turns to Jesus and he brings up the kingdom of God. Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Now think about what's happening in this moment, though. Jesus is also like suffering. He is also dying a very slow death. He is like headed down the same road that they are. There, there is no tomorrow in this scenario. So for him to look at Jesus and say, remember me when you come into your kingdom, he had to believe that Jesus was telling the truth about who he is. That there was a kingdom that was coming. That that day would not be the end. And that Jesus has the power to save him, to remember me. That Jesus has the authority to bring him along for the ride. Now, to go from mocking Jesus to saying, out of reverence for God, I recognize my own brokenness, but I recognize that this man is different. This man is the king this man is coming to into his kingdom and has the power to save me. Will you please, I plea with you, remember me. How does he know the, the bones of the gospel? How does he go from, from one side of the cross to the other, let's say? We, we don't know the specifics. But only God can bring someone on that journey. N.T. Wright is a theologian, author, and he talks a lot about this. And it's not a concept that I understand fully, but I'm trying. He says, you know, that, that it's easy to think that suffering and pain in our world, that's happening as it happens, the kingdom of God shows up. And it's almost, this is how I would describe what he is saying, is like that the kingdom of God just like coexists with suffering, that in spite of the fact there's pain and brokenness, the kingdom of God still shows up. That God can like work around that. He says that's actually not what the Bible talks about as much as the Bible speaks that the kingdom of God comes through suffering. Like that's how it gets here. It's through pain. And that to me is like a that's a that's a paradigm that I like I'm very interested in thinking more about. But think about how many times in Jesus' ministry that the kingdom of God shows up in a painful situation. Every time he heals someone, there's pain there. Every time he frees someone from demonic oppression, there's pain that's there. 
He was born into the world, pain. He dies on a cross, pain. Think about our own world. How many times when the kingdom of God really shows up in tangible ways, it's in the midst of sadness and hurt. What if, what if that's like God's whole thing? Is like, hey, there's going to be goodness and happiness. There's going to be all this kind of stuff in the world. Absolutely. But you see the kingdom of God uniquely in suffering, like in the, through it, not just next to it. And that's what's happening here. All three of these men are suffering. And yet, for this thief on the left, the kingdom shows up. And I don't know why not the guy on the right. Like, I don't, I'm not here. I, I can't compare those two. I have no idea what to work with. But whatever happened to the guy on the left, uh, I have full, like, every intention of asking him in person. Because he's going to be walking around the new earth with us. And I'm going to be like, hey, bro, I need to, I need to ask some questions. I need to hear this story of how you went from one side to the other. No sermon. Jesus isn't preaching on the cross. No miracle. He didn't even have time to get like baptized or like any, anything like that. Like it was just like, I believe, and he died. How does that happen? Well, it happens because the Spirit does the work. In this moment, the Holy Spirit is doing something. And that's why Jesus looks at him, verse 43. says, Truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. How amazing. Jesus just asked for forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Look how fast the response of the Father is. Okay. It'd be nice if it was always that quick, right? It was an incredible, incredible scene. Now, Turn to Ephesians chapter 2 for me. Join me there for a second. Because although that is enough right there, I think, to preach, God was showing me some things about my, my journey, about the journey of believers in general. Um, there's this thing in the that I had never heard of until seminary, and I heard it a lot while I was there. They talk about how dangerous it is to build your whole theological model off of one verse. How You you don't just like pick one verse out of the, all the verses in the Bible and say, I, everything I believe is based on this one thing. Because God has laid out this incredible book to teach truth and confirm it over and over and over and over again through the course of this great work. And so, in, in other words, you wouldn't build your whole understanding about your salvation based on the two thieves on the cross narrative. You could, because it's true. But God has given us more to go on. He surrounded, he surrounded the authors of the, uh, these books of the New Testament with other authors and other authors and other authors. He's built this incredible case to say, yeah, what you're seeing in this story is the playing out of a really incredible theological truth that's explained in other places. So what I want to do is I want to look at a few verses in Ephesians 2, tie them to the crucifixion scene, but I want everyone that's listening to find yourself in there too. Because 
I believe that a lot of you have have gone from one side of the cross to the other through through the Lord. That you've gone from being the thief who blames Jesus through Christ to become the thief who worships Jesus. But I can't assume that everyone has done that. I can't assume that everyone has like said yes to the love of Jesus expressed in what we're talking about. And so if you have not, I want you to hear this as one big, like, like I'm pleading my case, pleading, well not my case, pleading God's case to you, of saying this is what's on the table. If you have said yes, then I, I hope that this is a blessing to you to just further solidify and reinforce exactly what God has done. So in Ephesians 2, starting in verse, let's look at 8 and 9 to start with. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What does it have to do with the thieves on the cross? Well, he starts off, he says, by grace you've been saved. So what is grace? Um, different ways to define it. My, my favorite definition is, is God doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. This thief could not do anything for himself. He's nailed to a cross. He is like strategically and very intentionally dying of the most slow, painful death that they could possibly come up with in Rome. Nothing he could do in that moment to change the situation. And so for us, in terms of salvation, there's nothing we can do to change our the fact that we are spiritually dead before we meet Christ. A dead person cannot raise themselves. And so it had to be grace. It had to be God doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, just like for this thief. So verse 8, For by grace you've been saved through faith. That's what we bring to the table. Faith is that, that active trust that, that Jesus really is who he says he is. It's a, I heard it said one time, it's a belief in his believability. It's like, no, 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 I, I'm actively placing my faith in the fact that Jesus is telling the truth. That's what the thief does on the cross. That's why he can look at Jesus and say, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I believe you're telling the truth about this whole kingdom thing and that you are the king, that you're the one. By grace you've been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Verse 9, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So that's twice he says it's not about what you've done, not your own doing, not about your works. As I said earlier, this guy, he couldn't get baptized. He didn't have a chance to like go and do a bunch of good deeds. He couldn't like give give money and be generous to someone. He couldn't like reenact a good Samaritan parable with someone who's hurting. He could he couldn't do anything. If it was about works, this guy was up a creek because there was nothing no works he could do in that moment. And so it must not be about works. The Bible teaches that we we do all of those really important and incredible things as a result of what God, what God has done, not in order to get there. We do this because we're saved, not in order to get saved. 
So by grace, by God doing what you can't do for yourself, through faith, through you believing that Jesus is telling the truth, we've been saved, not through our own works, not by our own doing. And he says that it is the gift of God. I got curious about that. I've read that verse many times. and never really thought a whole lot about that, the gift part of it. I just kind of assumed it. So let me... I wonder what that word gift, where, where is it used other places? It's the same word that's used when the, the wise men from the east come to Jesus as an infant to bring him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Same, the giving of that gift is the same word that's used there. It's the same word that's used uh, in the story of the widow's mite, where she is giving all that she has to the, in the offering in the temple. Same word that's there. Um, same word in Matthew five when Jesus says, uh, "If you're if you're at the altar, like giving your gift, like bringing your sacrifice to the altar, and you realize that your brother has something against you, leave your leave your gift, go be reconciled, and come back." All those are the same word. I started thinking about in all those scenarios, the giving of a gift was an expression of worth. The wise men, the widow. The person making their sacrifice at the altar are all there to, to express worth in terms of that gift. And so God, expressing his worth to his sons and daughters who are suffering, brings grace to do what they can't do for themselves. And tells them the truth so that we can respond to that truth so I believe that you're. T- I believe it. That's what he wants, not our good works. The works can come later. That's what salvation. That's where. So the moving parts of it all. So this thief is living verses eight and nine right before our eyes, and proving to us by Jesus's response that verses eight and nine are true. That by grace we have been saved through faith. It's not our own doing. It's the gift of God. Not by our works. So that none of us think we're super awesome. This thief in this moment does not think that he's awesome. Okay. Now, where does that come from? Why would this all be happening? Well, if you back up to verse 4, Ephesians 2, look at verse 4. He spent one, two, and three basically like saying, like, hey, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. He's setting up the scenario where we can't, do, we can't change our situation. Verse 4, he says, but God, being rich in mercy. Okay, what's, what's mercy? Mercy is God's compassion toward those who are uh, suffering. Toward those who are in affliction. It's... It's God showing up in our in the worst of times, uh, and Paul says that God is rich in that. He has an incredible wealth of showing up in the pain, but God being rich in mercy, and here's the here's the core: because of the great love with which He loved us, that's what drives the grace. That's what drives the mercy. That's what drives the whole, like the, the whole thing. Is God looking at his sons and daughters 
in a situation that they could not change, a situation of death, and saying, we, we're going to bring life to them. Father, Son, Spirit, together, come up with a plan to bring life to us who are dead. That is the gift of God. Driven by this great love with which he has loved us. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places. So this whole idea of life made us alive with him, raised us up with him. This is, this is all about resurrection. This is all about death coming I mean, life coming from death. And think, let's think about this for a second. Three guys on the cross. Jesus looks at this dude and says, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. You realize the confidence that Jesus had in the Father in this, in this moment? He would have every reason to think that God had walked away from him. Had truly abandoned him, that had had changed the plan somehow because the situation was getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And yet he looks at this guy and says, today, brother, today. Today we will be raised. Today we will walk in new life. The confidence not only that Jesus was going to be raised, but that also this thief was going to be raised. Jesus didn't say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be raised. I'm not sure about you. We'll see what happens. He's like, no, 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 it'll be us. Today in paradise. Jesus knowing their bodies were going to go into the ground. Their souls were going to go to be with the Lord. And that's what makes paradise paradise. It's not the streets of gold. It's not the, all that other kind of stuff. It's, the, it's being with God, unfiltered. Uh, no doubt about it. Like that is what makes it paradise. And Jesus says, "I got good news, man. Today is the day." Raised us up with Christ. In the verse, uh, that next part of that verse, verse six, seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That He brings us along for the ride, just like I was saying. And then look at verse seven. So that in the coming ages, okay, when are the coming ages? Right now. That's talking about us. So that on March 13th, 2022, a kind of sleepy congregation who lost an hour of sleep is going to be sitting in a room. And what are they going to be doing right here? In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He's looking down the corridor of time and being like, Generation after generation is going to sit in awe of this God. Of this Father-Son Spirit plan. Of the great love with which He has loved us. Of the, the grace to go to those incredible links to do what we couldn't do for ourselves. Of the richness of mercy to come and find us in our pain. And not to make us have to do a bunch of tasks and jump through a bunch of hoops. He's like, just believe that I'm telling you the truth. And all of those who have gone ahead of us who are with the Father, waiting for the resurrection, cheering us on, 
It's almost like you can hear them saying, like, it's worth it. It's worth it. Hang in there. Life is hard. Yes, keep going. Keep going. Keep going. The confidence that Jesus has in that moment, and he extends it to this brother today. That's the kind of confidence that we can walk in because of what Christ has done. That's connecting Ephesians 2 into that story, but it's pulling all of us into it as well, saying like we, we can walk in that kind of confidence. The thief on the cross, he didn't have the opportunity that we have to live life after that moment of crossing from one side to the other. He wasn't able to do what we're able to do. He wasn't able to bring the kingdom close to his neighborhood or his workplace. He wasn't able to bring the kingdom to an Easter egg hunt on April the 9th. Like he wasn't able to do these things. We are. The kingdom has come through suffering and it comes to us through suffering and we bring the the kingdom of God into a world that is celebrating and hurting. Do you see yourself in, in that? Do you, do you receive that? Like as you're thinking about, like, is this resonating within you? I hope so. What may be resonating is I need to have that conversation with the Lord. I need to have that same talk with Jesus that the thief had. In which case, Jesus is super on board with that. And you don't need me to walk you through it. You don't need anybody else to walk you through it. You and him can have that conversation in this room right now. And if that is the case, I hope, I hope that you will not walk out of here without telling somebody. If you have already had that conversation and there's just a gratitude or a, maybe a conviction. See, for me, it, like when I think about all of this together, it, just, it makes me want more. More of what God saw in me when he saved me, you know? Like the healed version of me, the fullness version of me. It makes me quicker to say no to myself and yes to him, quicker to deny myself and take up my cross. It makes me desire, like I want to shed away the things that are keeping me from that. And i got to have his help to do it. Because not only were we saved by grace, we also live by grace. It's God continuing to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And the mercy is still there, and it's all driven by that same love. Once you come into a relationship with him, it's there. You know, It's there all the time. It's not just there for your salvation moment, and then he kind of like, oh, you're on your own now. He's like, no, 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 no. We're entering into this long, we're here in for the long haul. Father, Son, Spirit, with you forever. And so whatever, whatever this stirs within you, it's, it's yours to respond to, you know. When Jesus preaches, he just kind of preaches the word, and then people either, like, took it or they left it, you know. They either wanted more or they wanted nothing to do with it. Every now and then they had a few questions. And I feel like that's, that's my role uh, here as, like, a teaching pastor is, I, I need to just keep setting the table. I mean, no, no puns intended. Like, just keep being like, here's, here's what God has for us. Do we want to eat or not? Do you want what he is offering you? And so, with all of that said, we're, we're going to do what we do here. Is Once we've sung a little bit and prayed and kind of digested the word a little bit, we respond to what's stirring in us. 
We started doing last week as a part of Lent, like communion as a possible response. And so there's no obligation here. You don't have to like get in the line because everyone else is getting in the line. But if we think of it as Jesus standing behind a table, offering you the grace of his body broken for you, his blood poured out for you, maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe, maybe the act of leaving your seat and going to his table, maybe that's symbolic for you, of leaving some things, saying no to some things, saying yes to something better. Maybe you just need to sing. Maybe you want to come kneel here and pray. Maybe it's a mixture of all that. It's, it's, it's yours to steward at this point. But I hope that all of us will hear what the Spirit is saying through the Word this morning. And that we will believe Jesus' believability and what He has said and continues to say. Let's stand together. Father, we bring ourselves under the authority of, uh, of you. Father, we are thankful for the gift of God that has come to us in Christ, for the great love with which you've loved us, for the grace and mercy that have found us and only ask that we believe and trust And so would you help us this morning to, uh, to deny ourselves and take up our crosses, to follow you into whatever you are stirring within us as we pray prayers and sing songs of gratitude and uh, declaration this morning, recognizing the wisdom of that, that man hanging on the cross who knew that your kingdom was coming and that you were going to run it and that you had the power to save him and remember him. May we have the same kind of faith this morning as we we don't share the exact details of his story, but it's all rooted in the same place, which is just in you and who you are. So as we respond this morning, help us do so humbly. ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. You can come. The tables are open. You can respond however you like in these closing moments.